Welcome to Beyond Politics. I'm your host, Paul Hodes, with my co-host, Matt Robeson. We're broadcast on WKXL, we're on podcast, we're on the Blue Amp channel on YouTube. And recently, statistics came in, it turns out that Beyond Politics is in the top 15% worldwide, most listened to and most shared podcasts. So thank you to all our listeners. One of the biggest questions in politics in the last week has been a political version of WTF. How could George Santos win a congressional district after making up every detail about everything in his life? Turns out he didn't graduate from college. He didn't work for Citigroup or Goldman Sachs. He didn't own 13 properties. He's not Jewish. We still don't know if he's really gay or how the heck he went from owing thousands of dollars to being able to loan $700,000 to his congressional campaign. He's now being investigated by federal and state law enforcement authorities. And despite bipartisan outrage, he's refused to step down. Well, to try to figure out how the heck this could happen, we have probably the person best qualified in the entire universe to tell us. Our old friend, Congressman Steve Israel, represented most of Mr. Santos's congressional district on Long Island in the U.S. House, former colleague of mine. He also chaired the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee from 2011 to 2015, where he oversaw the Democratic Party's efforts to win races like this one. And he's just published an article in The Atlantic titled, how a perfectly normal New York suburb elected a con man. Steve Israel, welcome back to Beyond Politics. Oh, it's great to be reunited with you, Paul. So it seems like backstory matters here because it led to some complacency on the part of both voters and the DCCC, the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee, that made them miss what appears to be a giant fraud What's that backstory? Well, look, th this really does begin with Mr. Santos. The guy was a huckster. He is a huckster. He's a grifter. He perpetrated a fraud on the voters of the first congressional of the third congressional district. But he was able to get away with it for several reasons. One is uh, Republican extremism. The Republican Party nominated a candidate based on his extremist view, based on his fidelity to Donald Trump, and without any consideration, without any due diligence as to whether this guy was basically fit for office, what qualifications did he have? The second problem, as you allude to, is that the nature of opposition research. And you and I know a lot about this, don't we? Because we were victims of our own opposition research, and we did opposition research on the people who ran against us. In this case, the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee did the opposition research, and they found some red flags, and they alerted the Democratic campaign, the candidate was Robert Zimmerman, to those red flags, which leads to the third and final deficiency in all of this, or malfunction, and that is when the red flags were raised with many in the local media, they responded with a sense of complacency. They responded by saying... This isn't a story. This guy's not going to win. This is a Democratic district. Biden would have won it by eight points. And so we're not we just don't have the bandwidth and the resources to investigate somebody who is going to be a non-entity on election night. Well, guess what happened? He won on election night based on this fraud. 
and the exposés, the attention that his lies received came just too late. As a result, January 3rd, barring unforeseen circumstances, this huckster is going to be a member of the United States House of Representatives. With qualifications like that, his next step is the presidency. There was a lot of rich information <laughs> in what you just walked us through there, Congressman. So I'd just like to tease a sure. little bit of it apart for okay. our listeners and our viewers here. Let's talk a little bit about opposition research. As you said, this is something we're all intimately familiar with, painfully. So what is opposition <laughs> research? What do campaigns do and what is the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee's role? I keep using this big acronym that's going to wash over people. The DTRI is the Democratic Party's, the branch of the Democratic Party that focuses on U.S. House races. You used to be in charge of it. So right. what do campaigns do and what does the DCCC do when it comes to opposition research? This is such an important question, Matt. It's really, we need to unpack it because it can get complicated. In a campaign, when a Republican runs for Congress, the one of the first things that the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee does is some basic research. Usually this is done by a research intern. In many cases, it doesn't even rise to a, somebody in a more substantive role. And so in most cases, an intern in the research department of the DCCC will do the equivalent of a LexisNexis search. You want to know, does this Republican running against Paul Hodes any tax liens, any jaywalking tickets, any moving violations, any nasty divorces, what's out there in the public record that we're going to want to know about. Now, the, that usually will, look, in many cases, it's rather banal, right? But in some cases, you get some red flags. At that point, it will go to a more serious investigation. You, know, you kick the tires, and if you see something, well, then you want to look under the hood. And in that case, in, in, in many respects, a research staffer will prepare a more thorough research book. That will then go to the actual campaign. Now, here was a deficiency in the Democratic campaign against Santos, in my view, the Deep Sea had a research project. They said to Mr. Zimmerman, look, there are some red flags here. Mr. Zimmerman, the Democratic candidate, then had to make a decision. Did he want to hire an opposition research firm? And that's not cheap, about $30,000, $40,000. Did he want to hire an oppo firm to go even deeper into what the DTC learned? Or did he want to try and pitch what the what was in the DD document, hoping that it was enough for the local media to go on? His decision was, I'm going to go with what I have. No need to spend all this extra money. He had just come out of a primary, had hardly any money in the bank. Not only did he not want to spend money on opposition research, he wanted to focus on raising more money against Mr. Santos. And so he provided this rather superficial document to the local media and the local media yawned. And I, just as a quick, Paul, I'm sure you want to get into this as well, because this broke this morning. And so we're all like kind of reading this in real time. But the Daily Beast did this fantastic investigation where they discovered... People should just Google it, look it up, Daily Beast. It's kind of breathtaking that with public information, they were able to discover that there's a river of dirty money that flowed to this, what appears to be a shell corporation that allowed Mr. Santos to redirect those $700,000 from big Republican donors to as a pass-through kind of to himself that he then loaned to the campaign. It's all pretty illegal. Some of the donors involved appear to be like the cousin to a banned sanctioned Russian oligarch. It's bad. So the point is, this information was out there. 
and it's it was quite gettable. It just took a little bit more legwork. I mean, it seems to me like they got to almost there, like another few hours could have done this. I mean, it, was it that tantalizingly close? Yeah, I think I've actually heard a number that kind of quantifies how close they got. And some people say, well, the Detroit had about 40 to 50% of what ultimately broke. But I have to say, I'm not sure that even at the additional 10, 20, 30, 40%, I'm not quite sure that it would have changed the trajectory of the media's interest in this. And this is the big story here is just that complacency, hmm. sleepy congressional district that generally votes for Democrats. You know, it's purple, not unlike Hodes's old district. Generally vote for Democrats, but a Republican would be okay as long as the Republican is moderate. It uh, Partisanship is not infused in the DNA in this district, right? So kind of a sleepy, complacent district. And then you have this conventional wisdom that George Santos is just not going to win. This isn't a story. He's going away. And so why spend resources on this? And then factor into the, this, the third, and I think the most serious point for the future of our democracy, and that is the consolidation of suburban newspapers, right? So as newspapers have consolidated, right, and so many have just gone out of business and stress has been put on the budgets of local newsrooms and investigative journalists have been laid off or their bandwidth is just really narrow, the result is that you don't get the kind of scrutiny that you used to when you see these red flags. Put it all together, you have a perfect storm of complacency, which led to the storm of George Santos being sworn in. And now everybody's saying, how did we miss it? Well, it's quite clear how it was missed. Well, correct me if I'm wrong, but he had run in 2020, I believe, and had not fared very well. And so it was pretty easy for the establishment. And by that, I'll, I'll, I mean both the political establishment as well as the media establishment to discount any chances. And thinking about where you spend your money and put your attention, if there's a no ball guy running for Congress. I mean, why are you going to spend a lot of time or effort looking into the background of some no ball who doesn't have a chance? That's kind of the way the Republicans treated me when I ran the second time in 2006. I'd gotten clobbered in 2004. So why should they spend any time looking at what I was going to do in 2006? Of course, they didn't see Rahm Emanuel coming. But wait, you know, Paul, does this mean that you're not a musician and you're not even Jewish? Uh, what a question. Or maybe you're Jewish. <laughs> well, I am a musician and I am Jewish. But look, one of the, one I just want to think uh, dig down just a bit on this question of media because one of the things we saw in 9/11 what was that it's necessary but not sufficient to have information. You have to connect the dots and get all the right information to the right people, get them to pay attention. And so while red flags were found, they were buried, the media didn't think that they were going to have a meaningful story, at least the establishment media. I mean, there were some efforts made by some of the media to, to break this. And apparently Mr. Zimmerman tried to tell people that there was there there was a problem i guess one of my the further question is you talked about the consolidation of newspapers and it's true there doesn't 
seem to be much of a news press out there. It's happening all over the country. But do you see other or other decline in media at fault here in terms of complacency beyond newspapers? Is it also a function of radio and TV? And it, do we see an overall decline in the appetite of media to really dig in to issues like this? Well, so I want to be fair. I'm not sure that there's a reduced appetite by the media. Uh, I think it's more accurate to say that it becomes a bandwidth issue. And so for on Long Island, Paul, the dominant media platform is Newsday. It's right. a great newspaper. And several yep. years ago, they broke through their investigative unit an extraordinary story that got national attention where they had some reporters posing as buyers of homes who would go to local real estate agents. And they had uh, white and then African-American reporters posing as customers, right, go into right. a real estate agent. And lo and behold, if you were white, you were steered to a certain neighborhood. And if you weren't, you were steered to a different neighborhood. That is the essence of extraordinary investigative journalism. That project took years and a big budget. Then you have a couple year, two years later, you have this Democratic candidate, Robert Zimmerman, who knocks on the doors of Newsday and says, hey, I have another story for you. And Newsday's like, their view is, look, we are focused on other projects. We can't squeeze this one in. And by the way, this guy's not going to win. To your point, Paul, he ran two years ago and nobody even remembered that he had run two years before. So why focus on this now? And so it is kind of this perfect storm that I alluded to. And then finally, you've got the pre you've got the pressure of social media and the tribalization of media in America today, where we're increasingly turning to news content on social media that doesn't tell us what we need to know, but confirms our biases and ratifies what we already think. Right. You put it all together. It's not good for democracy that we are losing the quality of investigative journalism and reliable news content in America. Well, in the final analysis, I guess what I want to ask, well, first of all, I want to ask the big question that will only appeal to 1% of our audience as three Jewish men on this panel. <laughs> is George Santos Mishpucha? I think I I'm going to say no. Do we vote no? We're all no, voting. No. Okay. No. no, here's the real final <laughs> Definitely analysis. Definitely not. Okay. Here now for the rest of the 99%. I'm in the final analysis, Congressman, should Democrats have, have done something differently? You've alluded to this idea of a perfect storm. It does yeah. seem like Mr. Zimmerman did make a tactical choice to focus more on Santos as you, you when you have a limited budget in a campaign. You really have to triage. You can't talk about everything. Nothing's, you're, right. if you talk about everything, you're talking about nothing. Got to mm -hmm. focus on one clear message. And they made the decision. What's most likely to win is Santos is an extreme nut job, not Santos is a fraud. So that was a decision. And that approach worked in a lot of other races in 2022. That was probably the right decision in most races, most of the time. You also allude to the fact that Democrats didn't see this district as a real threat. From time to time, you get these weird results, like Eric Cantor. He's the third ranking member of the House, an actual Jew. And he's defeated in this kind of like, by this obscure candidate. I worked for a guy who won this razor thin margin race and then was defeated in a primary two years later, John Tierney. Like it, it just, these things happen. And I can tell you from inside a campaign, you get your polling results, you have one of the top pollsters in the country, and they're telling you, you're fine, not a problem here. And then all of a sudden, the worm turns. So these kinds of things can happen. You mentioned the factors in the media. So final analysis, 
Should Democrats with 2020 hindsight have actually done anything differently? Or was this just a confluence of perfectly aligned things that made this happen? Well, I'll be honest. If I, if my, my criticism of Mr. Zimmerman's campaign, and he and I go back about 30 years, is that when he got that research book from Dietrich, he should have invested in his own oppo research project. Mm -hmm. I don't know about Paul Hodes, but I can tell you, not only did I do a full oppo book on every opponent I had, whether it was going to be a tight race or a blowout, I did oppo on myself. I spent $30,000 trying to figure out what skeletons I may have had in the closet that I didn't know about because I wanted to know what the bad guys knew. And so if there is a criticism of the tactical decisions that Mr. Zimmerman's campaign made, I would say he he might have taken the that 40% that D-Trip had those red flags and then dug, dug, and dug to see what else was there. But I, again, I want to be fair. Had he done that, it's not a slam dunk that it would have changed the outcome of the campaign. It's not a slam dunk that local news platforms or others would have paid attention to the additional oppo. I hear you loud and clear, because in, in my congressional races, we did that. We we did oppo research on my opponent. We also probably did more oppo research on me than on my opponent. And I finally put, that, and it all came out, it was all true. And I finally wrote it in a song. But my opponent, for some reason, never used anything that he could have used. And I'll the very quick story I'll tell you about how politics has changed is, Early on in my first campaign against then Congressman Charlie Bass, he came up to me at a parade. We had a nice chat. We had both gone to Dartmouth College. And he said, Paul, we both went to Dartmouth College at a certain time. There are things we are not going to ever talk about, right? I said, you got it, Charlie. And we ran an issue-based campaign with nothing personal that it's ever came mutual out. mutual assured defamation. Right. <laughs> Actually, when I was hired, Paul, as your chief of staff, I remember distinctly saying like, look, man, I sat down, closed the door and I said, just tell me anything that I need to know if I need to defend you in the future. I just need to know what might be coming so that I'm not caught slack jawed when it eventually comes out. And you're like, well, I inhaled. And I'm like, all right, that's not that bad. Honestly, the oppo on you was Paul Hoods. Kind of boring. All right. So, so Steve, what's the role for Republicans here? Santos, ah. Santos is this huge fraud, but Republicans, frankly, ran a lot of nut jobs in 2022, and it was apparently a big factor in Democrats' success. What should Republicans have done? Paul, this is, I think this is a really important question, and it reflects just how deep this problem is. Yes, it is true that Mr. Santos is the culprit, but he had some co-conspirators. And the Republican Party is a co-conspirator. They recruited him based on his ideological extremism because he fit the same mold as Marjorie, Marjorie Taylor Greene and Lauren Bob and Matt Gates. They didn't recruit him and nominate him based on an iota of indication as to his fitness to serve. Based on, by the way, if they did due diligence and this stuff came up, well, then they have bigger problems because they ignored potential criminal activity. But my guess is they didn't even bother. They just wanted a pro-Trump extremist who would fit the mold and gave him the nomination, perhaps believing that he wouldn't even win, but giving him that platform. So they are very much culpable in this process. Well, and now it appears based on the reporting in the Daily Beast that 
his this financial funnel of dirty money coming out of big Republican donors in Florida and this Russian magnate it was very intertwined with the Zeldin campaign for governor. And it, I think the culpability, I don't want to over-speculate, especially where legal matters are concerned. I'm not trying to like defame the man, but there are indications that the culpability may go even deeper than that. He was sort of a programmed implant of the Zeldin campaign, and we'll see how deep those ties go. I, okay, here's a portion of the show called Let's Skewer Former Congressman Steve Israel. I'm going to put you on the spot, Go Congressman. Ahead. Oh, I was really looking um, forward to this part. Oh, yeah. this is <laughs> You do us a, a mitzvah here by coming on the show. And yeah. now, this is not that tough a question. You're the former head of the DCCC. Yeah. And one thing that's been highly controversial in recent years is the degree to which political parties should step in and try and sideline problematic candidates. It was especially controversial in this political cycle where the DCCC and the DSC acronym soup, basically the Democratic Party, came in both Senate primaries and House primaries, and they put their thumb on the scale for the crazier of the Republican candidates. They actually supported, and it actually worked in New Hampshire. It seems to have significantly benefited now reelected Senator Maggie Hassan and Annie Custer, who has your old seat, Paul. I mean, this stuff worked. But what about when the problem is in your own house? So former chair of the DCCC, Steve Israel, what is the role of the party in this? If you see that you have a con man, a nut job, a Herschel Walker, let's say, what should the parties be doing here? Yeah, it's a great question. The mission of the DCCC and the NRC and the DSCC and all of those acronyms, very simple, very simple. One mission, win. If you have one client as the chairman of the DCCC, just one, a Democratic majority. And so you do everything you must do within the letter of the law in order to achieve that outcome. And sometimes it gets a little bit grisly and sometimes <laughs> it doesn't look very pretty. But at the end of the day, your obligation is to make sure that the, as the chair of the DCCC, that it is the Democrats who have the gavel so that they can enact an agenda that reflects the values and priorities of Democrats. And if you have if a weak stomach and you're not willing to make those tough calls and do what needs to be done to get better candidates in the field, then you're, you hold the wrong position within the mm. Democratic caucus. Well, politics is no place for people with weak stomachs. We've seen plenty of that in our time. Marjorie Taylor Greene was recently quoted as basically saying, well, okay, let's see how he legislates. Let's, he'll come. We'll see how he votes. Let's not judge him too harshly, too quickly, which, I mean, it's a calm statement from her, actually, and one of the, one of the few calm kind of statements statements we've seen, but yeah, judge not lest ye be judged, yeah, right. Marge. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> she, she doesn't want anybody looking into her background, I guess. But what should Republicans do now? The One of the interesting things about this is there are a lot of dynamics around the race for a speaker. If he's having some issues in terms of counting votes, I'm wondering, has he already reached out, as they say, reached out to uh, Congressman-elect Santos? Is Santos going to be able to 
Is he going to be on committees? Will he hire a staff? Is he going to start raising money as all good members of Congress do immediately after their election? His constituents, at least according to some of the public statements, actually seem split about what to do about him. But is it fair to his constituents to have a zombie right-wing vote and nothing more representing them? I mean, a crook on the floor. I mean, just a crook on the floor of Congress. I mean, an outed crook at this point, just a liar, a grifter, as you said, a con man. What should the Republicans do? Well, this is interesting because I just received an hour before our conversation a copy of an invitation, Matt and Paul, that Santos has sent to his supporters. The invitation was discovered by Newsday, Long Island's paper. And in that invitation, he invites people to join him at his swearing in, but asks for a $100 and $250 donation. Now, that seems problematic to me. I don't, I'm not an ethics lawyer. But my understanding is, and I'm sure Paul, you'll remember, you cannot use any official activity as a fundraiser. Anything that's happening. Now, many of our former colleagues would, of course, invite their supporters to the swearing in. And they could, as as I understand, use campaign proceeds to pay for a bus. But this is the first time I ever saw an invitation where somebody says, join me for my swearing in, $250 VIP, $100 supporter. And that gives you a sense of, you would think, every time we think we've gotten to the bottom of this story, it appears more bottomless. So we'll see where that goes. With respect to what the next few weeks hold, my guess, I think you're right, Paul, my guess is that Kevin McCarthy is trying to, he's trying to play out the clock on this. He needs Santos's vote on January 3rd because he doesn't have a very big margin. So he's got to have Santos's butt in the chair, be or not, to vote for him. But then he's got a long-term challenge, and that is if Santos decides to resign or if he is forced out of his seat, the Republicans now have a special election in a Biden plus eight congressional district that's going to cost them three, four, five million dollars, going to get national attention because of what Santos has done. And they're likely to lose a special in a Biden plus eight district where you have a real candidate who's telling the truth. And that real, that's a severe uh, problem for the Republican narrative. Just when you get the majority, you're down another one. And so, so my assumption would be that they will try and find a calculation that keeps this zombie, well put, Congressman Hodes, keeps this zombie where he is and then toss him to the curb if he's not in federal prison by, by then and then recruit another Republican to run in 24. You know what? That's... um. Wow. I, book it. I know we can't bet on political outcomes. Actually, you can bet on political outcomes, but I would put some money in the betting markets on that one. By the way, just a quick behind the scenes, and you can both speak to this. I'll speak to it from a staffer's perspective. One of the interesting wrinkles, Paul, that you just brought up in that last question, is he going to be able to hire a staff? There is so much to do. You almost wrote a book about this. And I think Rom tried to get you to not do it when you were part of that freshman class of the 2006 election. I remember Rom leaning on you pretty significantly not to do this, but like that initial rush between the time you're elected and the time you get sworn in is really tough. I've been part of setting up a couple of different congressional offices in swing districts. It is hard. You've got to hire a staff of 20. You've got to figure out all kinds of stuff that makes a huge difference. This is incredibly hard. Imagine setting up a small business with a multi-million dollar budget 
and a staff of 20 in seven weeks and you're part of the US government and there are all kinds of arcane rules and you've got to figure all of this out. And most of it is in Latin. And one of the first things you do is you hire someone like me to help you figure out how to do all this stuff and kind of run the playbook. I think we've seen the consequences with Donald Trump of when the A team and the B team say no thank you and you're kind of stuck with the F team. And I think Santos may very well be in that position and it's going to make things even rougher. Just the, the capacity for unforced errors, further further problems, further filings, mistakes, like legal entrapments, it just becomes exponentially higher. This is going to be a really rough few weeks in that office. But I digress, unless either of you want to comment on that aspect. The only thing I want to say, Matt, is, and I don't want you to get a swell head about this, but- my, I already have a gigantic head, I know. like one my, of the my, my, my first mistake, and there were many I made in life and as a congressman, my first mistake- And they're all in the oppo book on you. I know, but my first mistake was not hiring you out of the gate. I spent six months with another chief of staff who- had lots of expertise in on the campaign side, but not so much on Capitol Hill. And as a result, um, it took me quite a few months to get my feet under me because I was in a state, I was exhausted. I was in a state of shock. And I can only, you can only imagine what this guy is doing. He's giving, he's in huge demand in the media. He's giving contradictory statements everywhere he goes. He's trying to backtrack. He's still breaking laws, clearly like trying to fundraise off his official position. This guy sounds like he's digging himself into a deeper and deeper mess. And you got to wonder who's there to give him advice. Who's his, who's his person who's telling him, Hey, this is what the law is. This is what, how Congress works. This is what's going on. Hey folks, for people who don't know, Steve Israel is a prolific novelist. He's a brilliant writer. I propose that your next novel should be called The F Team. I'm picturing Mr. <laughs> Team. It's a series of incompetent commandos come in to run congressional offices and political operations and screw everything it. up even further. I, I that's love my it. Pitch. I will write it and then I will sell it at the independent bookstore that I own in Oyster Bay. So Fantastic. I, I can sell it. But listen, I do want to I want to pick up on, some, on this. So Mr. Santos decides yesterday that he's going to try and pivot. And he, he makes an affiliate. Now, I'm sorry, this was on Thursday. I'm sorry, Wednesday. He makes a pivot. He goes to the Merchant Marine Academy on Long Island and he right. does a tweet. Now, this is an example of either bad staffing or no staffing. He foolishly does a tweet about, it was my honor to visit the U.S. Merchant Marine Academy and I look forward to representing them. And then there were like 10,000 comments, including did you tell them that you were the first Lord of the Admiralty succeeding Winston Churchill? <laughs> Did you tell them about that time that you threw your body on a hand grenade to stop the <laughs> injury to your platoon? <laughs> this is, it wasn't one good comment that, that I was able to get. This is an example. It's hard enough, Matt, to your point, it's hard enough to be a new member of Congress. You really do need the A-team around you to do good things and stop you from making mistakes. I'm told by Republicans on Long Island that the initial team that he had, many of them have said, I want nothing to do with you. They've decided not to work for him because mm -hmm. his resume may be made up. They don't want their resume tainted. So they've decided not to work for him. And as a result, he, even when he tries to do the right thing, it blows up in his face. Yeah, I mean, it's that really is amazing. And it's I'll just put a, a period on this thought with, again, just going back to our, our sainted Rahm Emanuel. I remember once, Paul, once 
and there's no, this almost never happened. You gave a slightly loose quote to the media. You were otherwise perfect in your whole career. And I got a call from Rom's right-hand man saying, Matt, this is a staff problem. You bleeped up. This is on you. And so, and like the point is, he was kind of right. That's our job is to throw ourselves on these kind of metaphorical hand grenades and like see around the corner. It's like, hey, here's a problem. Maybe don't lay yourself on these train tracks right before the train is about to arrive. I want to I want to interrupt you. Yeah. I have one problem with what you just said. There is nothing sainted or saintly about Rahm Emanuel. <laughs> use those words again in the same sense. <laughs> exactly about not having saints in Judaism. Yeah, I don't know. Like, okay. So back, back on track here. You, Congressman, you were alluding a moment ago to maybe Speaker-elect Kevin McCarthy, probably not, who knows? And kind of these weird dynamics of like, we sort of need, we sort of need George Santos as a political vote and organ donor right now. And then he's expendable from McCarthy's standpoint. But McCarthy, that's just one part of a larger problem that McCarthy has. Nancy Pelosi did a brilliant job corralling the Democratic cats. No small task. You both know better than anyone over the last two years with the exact same margin that Kevin McCarthy maybe is facing in the next two years. His ability to do that is very much in question. It seems like the Freedom Caucus, we've got at least five on the record counted, never Kevin people. The Freedom Caucus is trying to extract a pound of flesh and a pound of blood and everything else from him. And what I'm concerned about, and what I'd love for you to Congress to, to comment on, is he going to constantly be kind of at the mercy of the right-wing nut jobs and the Freedom Caucus types? Are they, if we see a Kevin McCarthy speakership, does it mean that the Freedom Caucus is de facto in charge of the House of Representatives? Well, if you're asking me, the answer is, of course, and we'll know for sure. We'll be able to qualify that fairly soon. If McCarthy bows to this demand by these five Freedom Caucus lead that he allow for a, a motion to vacate the chair based on one member's whim. So let's provide some context, right? Right now, you can vacate the chair. You can have a vote to, to kick out the speaker, but it's got to be, the motion has to be agreed to by the leaders of both sides. What these five and others want is the ability to vacate the chair based on any single member's whim. So could you imagine Lauren Bobert? having the power to introduce a motion to vacate the chair and Marjorie Taylor Greene, Matt Getz, if he agrees to that in order to put his hands on the gavel, that gavel is just coated with grease. They're going to try and strip it out of his hands every time he does something crazy in their views, like agree to an omnibus spending bill, right? Or support Ukraine or uphold the full faith and credit of the United States government by not going off a debt cliff. Every time he has to make a decision that's responsible, they're going to invoke the power to remove the gavel. And I know Republicans who have said to him, if it comes down to that, if the this motion to vacate the chair is what's standing in your way of the speakership, walk away from the speakership because it will never be yours. It will be mm. theirs. So, so given those kinds of dynamics, is anything going to get done in Congress in the next two years? What types of things are you keeping your eye on? What are you thinking is going to go on here? 
Well, ironically, a lot got done, as Paul, over the past several weeks, and that was because it was a political imperative for Kevin McCarthy. For example, the omnibus, that got done. Why did it get done? It got done because Kevin McCarthy made the politically correct decision not to hold it over, not to put it into the new Congress, where some of his new members were going to have to take some tough votes. What's really interesting about this next Congress, in my view, is there are 18 Republicans who represent Biden districts. They are not voting the way the Freedom Caucus is voting. They want moderate policies. They don't want government shutdowns. They don't want the face of the party to be Getz or Marjorie Taylor Greene or Bo Bear. So they're coming in wanting to pressure the caucus towards the center. And you've got some conservative members who don't want to have to vote on spending bills. McCarthy took care of everything by just taking the votes in this Congress, clearing the decks, and now you're going to have these two competing factions on the Republican side at constant warfare in, in the next Congress. I, that was a very long-winded way of saying, I don't see how they get anything done under a Republican Speaker of the House. All right, let me, this is, I'm not trying to put you on the spot. I was joking a moment ago about skewering former Congressman Israel, but this might be potentially tough because it involves your friends, and your former delegation mates. Congressman, New York is on a roll here. The <laughs> leader of the Democrats, the, yeah. the majority leader in the U.S. Senate is a New Yorker. And the, the leader of the Democrats in the House, maybe if we get lucky in 2024, the future Speaker of the House, is a New Yorker. I was going to ask you what's in the water in New York, but it's actually delicious. New York City water is fantastic. That's why the bagels are so good. That's why the pizza is so good. That's exactly right. But- is this good, like politically? Is this good for the Democratic Party that we are so New Yorkified here? Well, can we be just fair for a moment and say, remember, the Republicans swept Long Island, including George Santos, four congressional districts on yeah. Long Island. So it's New York minus, minus Oyster Bay. Well, I have to, but there's another question embedded in that, which is, didn't New, didn't New York Democrats screw us all up by being too aggressive and gerrymandering? But that's a whole other. Let me give you the first one first. New York is the site of a great political conflict in this cycle. Yes, it's true. We now have New York has Chuck Schumer. Hakeem Jeffries will be the Democratic leader. And so the two top position in, positions in Congress are occupied by New Yorkers. That's wonderful for New York. And I think wonderful for the country because it doesn't matter whether they're from New York or not. They understand middle-class sensibilities. Jeffries and Schumer, they understand what it takes to win, whether it's Brooklyn, New York, which Hakeem represents, or Brooklyn, Iowa, where we have to have a Democrat in order to take the majority. So, so that's terrific. On the other hand, it is true that while Democrats overperformed throughout the entire country in 2022, we underperformed in New York. And there's a lot, a lot of different reasons for that. We can go into it if you want. I do believe that of the four seats that we lost in New York, I think it's a pretty safe bet, barring any unforeseen circumstances, that we get at least two of them back in 24. And so this was a temporary setback that I think gives the Democrats some low-hanging fruit for the 24 cycle. And I mean, what do you, and what do you make of, it's interesting because the backstory in New York is weird. Democrats tried to, we anticipated, boy, there's like layers to this. Democrats thought that this was going to be a really rough cycle in part, not just because of historical factors, but because of the gerrymandering factor. 
So they kind of outthought themselves by saying, here are two states, Illinois and New York, where we have Democratic majorities in the state legislature and we can gerrymander back and we can kind of make up some of the difference. And when everything shook out, the gerrymandering wasn't as bad in the rest of the country, in part because of independent redistricting commissions and other things that Democrats had put in place. But in New York, Democrats were so overaggressive that they got snapped back by the state Supreme Court, in part because they had conservative judges, yeah. among which Governor Hochul just added another member. So it's like a very weird layered thing. Did Democrats hoist themselves on their own petard here, I guess is what I'm asking. You can always, like, like any great painting in any museum, you can always study it and find nuances and new things in a redistricting map. I know that because I participated in studying redistricting maps when I was the chair right. of DCCC. I used to call the 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 people who wrote the, who drew those maps Rembrandts and Picassos on both sides of the aisle. I do believe and I was outspoken on this and it annoyed some of Paul's and my former colleagues. I do believe that the initial map in New York was overly aggressive and that it was hard for a court which was a democratic court in New York it was hard for them to justify it. It was just a little, I mean, my own district, which used to be fairly self-contained, sprawled across the Long Island Sound. It came very close to Paul Hode's old district. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> that was some fanciful redistricting. So I do think that perhaps a more moderate map that wasn't going, that would have kept a couple of Republicans in their seats would have been more judicious and might have been approved by the court, certainly not struck down. Having said that, there were lots of other factors in this perfect storm that led to Republican victories in New York. One of them is the crime narrative. If you're, if Paul, you know this, you know you got suburban districts, you got suburban and rural voters talking to them about cashless bail and defunding the police is not a good way to start the conversation. Nope. And that narrative dominated in the suburbs. It helped Santos along with his cooked up resumes. It resulted in the defeat of the Democratic candidate in a district in Nassau County, which Biden had won by 12 points. So it was the narrative. It was redistricting. It was a bunch of other factors that resulted in, in the losses that we experienced in New York in 22. Well, Congressman, you've been very generous with your time. I know you have to get on to your next thing, which is not more media appearances. I've got to go sell books. I have my, my shift. So that's, soon. that's what I want to ask you about. So tell everyone who's watching on the Blue Amp channel, and we want you to buy your books. Forget that Bezos operation. What is the name of your bookstore? Congressman, where people can so, get their uh, Two years after leaving Congress, I fulfilled a, another dream, lifelong dream. One was serving in Congress. The other was opening up my own little independent bookstore. It's called Theodore's Books. And it's located in Oyster Bay, Long Island, named after Theodore Roosevelt, who lived and read on Sagamore Hill, just up the block from our store. And uh, we have amazing authors coming in. I got to get Hodes in at some point. We we have Adam Schiff coming in to talk about the January 6th report. We've had Doris Kearns Goodwin and Douglas Brinkley and uh, Candace Millard, wonderful nationally known authors. And my life now is spent just gabbing about books when I'm at the store. And I just love it. It's also accessible at theodoresbooks.com, if you don't mind me adding that shameless plug. Oh, not only are we're happy that you did that. And look, if you're ever wanting to live stream any of those amazing appearances, we'll do it. We have we got a YouTube channel for you, yeah. Congressman. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And thank you so much. No, we're going to talk you. business after this. Thank you so much for being on 
beyond politics. It's my pleasure. Thank you both. 